It is uh, my distinct pleasure to welcome our new assistant priest, Father Charles Humphrey, and his family here among us. Um, We're so glad to have you all. So I'm going to introduce him with a little bit of a story, and that is to say that when he arrived and we issued the call to hire him, and I think this is a story that can probably only be told in Texas, in between Texas and Mississippi, our illustrious senior warden, Jim McCoy, offered him a pocket knife. And that pocket knife has some connection from Texas to Mississippi that's his story to tell. My story is this, Father Charles allowed me to keep that pocket knife in my house as he was making his transition from Mississippi to Texas. And I felt that it was appropriate to give him the pocket knife here this morning just in case his first sermon doesn't work out exactly like <laughs> he can defend himself at the party afterward. How, how's that for a story? So anyway, welcome, and we're so glad to have you. Let me open us with a word of prayer. Would you all extend your hands as we do to bless him as he offers his first sermon? Father, thank you for bringing Charles and his family to us. Thank you for the joy that has already come into our congregation as a result of um, their arrival and their presence now here among us. Pour out your Holy Spirit upon him and upon us as he preaches the word this morning that our lives would be filled with faith, hope, and love. For Christ's name's sake we pray. Amen. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Well, good morning, Christ the Redeemer, or as I've been told, the cool kids call it CTR. Is that right? (laughs) We abbreviate things. So I want to start this morning by saying this. My family and I have a bone to pick with every single person here today. Seriously. As most of you probably know, we're from the great state of Mississippi. And admittedly, Mississippi doesn't have a lot to brag about. But what every Mississippian prides themselves on is the fact that we are known as the hospitality state. Mississippi is packed full of people that will take care of you, will love on you like your family, A Mississippian will meet you, and 10 minutes later, you're at their mama's house eating fried chicken. That's just how we do it. It's natural to us. And what I've always believed is that nobody, and I mean nobody, does hospitality quite like Mississippi. But then a few weeks ago, deep in the heart of Texas, I had an existential crisis. (laughs) My family and I, we met a group of people that exceeded our concept of hospitality. You guys have been so gracious to us. You've been so, so thoughtful and loving and accommodating and caring, and I could go on. You guys have shown us such hospitality that even a family from the hospitality state itself stands in awe of your generosity and tenderness. We could never thank you for all you've done. We could never tell you how much the past few weeks have meant to us. And we know that you guys didn't do it for a thank you or a pat on the back. You weren't kind and hospitable because you wanted to impress us. No, you loved on us without a second thought because that's what families do. And on behalf of my family, I would like to say that we are humbled and thrilled to call CTR our new family and our new home. So thank you. Now, I've been told this is Youth Sunday, and one of the things I need to do is address something to the kids, right? That's the way we do it? Okay. Now, here's what I'm going to do. Could all the children and youth please raise your hands? I just want to get a, get a view of where you are. Got you guys. You're easy. <laughs> all right. So I'm going to ask some questions. These are super, super easy questions, all right? First, put your hands down. <laughs> First, 
Raise your hand if you've ever been told that you had to follow some rule somewhere. Right? Okay, hands down. Second, second question. Raise your hand if it was an adult that told you that you had to follow a rule. I know, right? All right, hands down. All right, last question. Raise your hand if sometimes it's hard for you to follow rules. Yeah. Oh, hey, guys, I get it. Following rules is hard, whether you're a kid or an adult, doesn't matter who we're talking about. Speaking of adults, I want to ask the parents a question. And parents, I want you to listen very, very closely to the question I'm about to ask, okay? Parents, raise your hand if you love your children even when they break the rules. Everybody's hand should be up. Good. Okay. I was super worried. I don't know y'all that good. All right. Okay. That was the only hiccup. All right. A parent doesn't love their child because they follow the rules, right? No. Parents love their children even when their children disobey. Now, I realize none of that is news to you, thankfully. We know that's how the parent-child relationship works. But can I tell you it seems difficult for the Christian to remember this? It seems difficult for the Christian to remember that's not how our relationship works with our Heavenly Father. And I think our gospel text today speaks directly to this idea of love and obedience. I think, over the, I think that our gospel text lays out clearly what the rules are, what's expected from us. Yes, it does that. But our text is also clear that our ability to keep the rules is not why God loves us. So here's what I want to do. It's a bit unconventional, so forgive me. First, I want to try to sketch for you the claims of Jesus that are leading up to John chapter 14. And second, I want to show you that in our gospel text today, Jesus makes an offer to you and I that is so beautiful and deep that it should absolutely blow our minds. So if you haven't already, please turn with me to the 10th chapter of John, starting in the very first verse, and let's pray the Lord's guidance. <clears throat> now, John chapter 10 starts off by Jesus telling a parable to the Pharisees. This parable is about being a shepherd. In verse 7, Jesus makes a claim about himself. Jesus says that he is the door by which the sheep enter, and that the sheep can only enter rightly if they enter through him. Jesus continues and tells the Pharisees that he is the good shepherd and that he's calling his lost sheep home. And in both verses, Jesus is doing something that's actually quite provocative. Jesus is claiming ownership, ownership of both the sheep and of his position as their shepherd. And up until that point, the Pharisees might have thought that Jesus' parable was a little brazen, maybe even a little conceited, but it wasn't anything too outrageous. But then, in verse 29, Jesus tells the Pharisees something that makes them absolutely livid. Look in John chapter 10, verse 29. It reads, My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Now, Jesus' claim that he and the Father are one, this isn't a claim about some intellectual knowledge of the Father. His claim of knowing the Father isn't like the knowledge you get from a book or the knowledge that you learn from a teacher. No, Jesus' claim to have an intimate firsthand knowledge of the Father, a knowledge so, sound, so foundational that what belongs to the Father belongs to Jesus as well. These claims that Jesus makes, they enrage the Pharisees. Because the Pharisees understood what Jesus was really saying. The Pharisees understood that when Jesus claimed knowledge of the Father, when Jesus claimed that he and the Father were one, Jesus was claiming equality with the Father. 
The Pharisees understood that Jesus was claiming equality with God himself. The story moves from there into chapter 11, and it's in this chapter that we have the famous story of Lazarus. But right before Jesus calls Lazarus out of the tomb, he makes a very interesting claim. Look in chapter 11, verse 25. It reads, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me shall never die, yet shall he live. And when the Pharisees hear this, they're a little confused, and I think we can understand why. Teachers don't say stuff like this. A teacher would say something like, hey guys, if you follow these rules over here, you're going to have a great life. If you don't follow these rules, your life's going to be garbage. Teachers in Israel would say stuff like that. But teachers never say things like, hey guys, if you die, don't sweat it. I'll just bring you back to life. That's not something a teacher says. Now, but that's exactly what Jesus said. That's the exact claim that Jesus makes about himself. And the Pharisees don't like it at all. And they could have written that claim off as just being the musings of a madman. But in full sight of the Pharisees themselves, Jesus calls Lazarus out of the tomb. And out of the tomb walked a living, breathing, dead man, now alive. And the Pharisees, speechless. Now this caused a lot of people to believe in Jesus, as you would assume. But the Pharisees, what do they do? Do they believe? No. They scheme, they plot, they see Jesus as a threat to their positions, a threat to their rule. And so the Pharisees respond to Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead with a death threat of their own. They made it known that if Jesus shows his face anywhere, you just let the Pharisees know, they'll take care of the rest. So what does Jesus do with this looming death threat? What does Jesus do with the, as the Pharisees? The most powerful religious figures in all of Israel are seeking him in order to kill him. Well, in John chapter 12, it shows us exactly what Jesus does. Jesus, a man marked for death, strolls through the eastern gate of Jerusalem riding on a donkey. And as he rides down the streets, the people of the city gather and they shout his praises and they proclaim him to be Israel's king. Guys, if you're looking to lay low and hide from the Pharisees, this ain't how you do it. The actions of Jesus on that Palm Sunday are not the actions of a man who's backing down. If the Pharisees are looking for Jesus, if they want to pick a fight with Jesus, Jesus seems to say, bring it on, let's do it. And in chapter 12, Jesus marches straight into the Pharisees' backyard, straight into the temple itself, and runs everybody out with a whip. But when the Pharisees show up, the Bible says they were helpless to stop him. Helpless because the people were astonished by his teachings. They were, they were hanging on his every word. And in the midst of that teaching, Jesus makes one thing clear to every person that has a problem with him. Look in chapter 12, verse 49. It reads, For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who has sent me has given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. Jesus is telling them, if you have a problem with him, if you don't like something that he's said or done, then your problem isn't with Jesus. Your problem is with his Father. Why? Because Jesus only says what the Father is saying. Jesus only does what he sees the Father doing. 
Jesus, the eternal Son of the Father, takes on flesh and makes himself visible to us. And what the Son shows us is the image of the invisible Father. What you see when you look at Jesus is a perfect image of the Father. What you hear from Jesus are the perfect words of the Father. So if you hear Jesus and you respond in love, then you love his Father as well. Why? Because the words Jesus speaks are the words the Father has given him to say. And if you hear the words of Jesus and you find them repulsive, then you will have issue with his Father as well. Why? Because the words of Jesus are not his own. Jesus only says what the Father has told him to say. And as we move into chapter 13, Jesus moves beyond words. Look in John chapter 13, verse 4. It's here that we see Jesus, the eternal Son of the Father, washing feet. And yeah, these these are dirty, smelly fishermen feet, and that's bad enough. But you know what makes this scene even worse? Jesus is washing the feet of people he knows are about to betray him. Jesus is loving and serving the very people who were about to forsake him. And so the progression to me seems to be this leading up to our gospel text. In John chapter 10, Jesus claims that he and the Father are one. In John chapter 11, Jesus vindicates those outrageous claims by raising Lazarus from the dead. In John chapter 12, Jesus claims that if you see him, you see the Father, that his words and his actions are not his own. And then in John chapter 13, Jesus visibly shows us the heart of the Father, not only by washing feet, but by loving the very ones who were about to betray him. Jesus shows us that the love the Father has for us is not predicated on us. The disciples didn't earn God's love. No, most of the time the disciples were stiff-necked, hard-hearted, or worse. But God loved these men so much that he washed their feet even as they planned to betray him. This is the furious love of the Father shown to us in his Son. And this framework of unmerited love is exactly what you and I must remember as we venture into our gospel text. The very first line, John chapter 14, verse 15. You heard it this morning. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Is Jesus telling the disciples that if they keep God's law, then God will love them? Is that what he's saying? No. The love of God that he has for you and I is not based on our performance The love the Father has for us is in no way predicated on our obedience. No, God loved us while we were still yet sinners. Okay, fine, Father Charles. Verse 15 isn't about God loving us if we we behave. It's not about you and I trying really hard to be good so that God likes us. All right, so what's verse 15 about then? That's easy and incredibly difficult. If I had to answer the question, what was John chapter 14, verse 15 all about, and I had to choose just one word, I would choose the word image. Here's why. In verse 16 of our gospel text, what does the Father say he will give to those who love Jesus? Another helper, even the spirit of truth. And the spirit the Father sends won't just be with you, But in verse 17, it says that it will be in you. Jesus is telling the disciples something radical. 
the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, will come and make his dwelling not just with, but in those who love Jesus. And from the outside in, from the inside out, the Spirit will image in you the very life of God. The Holy Spirit enters into those who love Christ and creates in them the very image and likeness of Jesus. The Christian isn't someone who's just trying really hard to make God happy. No, the Christian is one who bears the very image and likeness of Christ. And as those who bear the image and likeness of Jesus, our obedience to him is shaped in us by him. Parents, do you love your children because they're obedient? Of course not. You love them when they listen and when they don't. But parents, do you require obedience from your children? Of course you do. Parents want their children to listen and obey because good parents actually know what's good for their children. A Christian's circumstances aren't all that different from a child's. The child, like the Christian, have life within themselves because it was given to them by another. Just as a mother bears a child in her womb unto birth, Christ bears you and I unto a second one. A Christian can truly and intimately know God, but the Christian, like the child, is helpless to know the parent or God unless the parent first stoops down and enters their little world and speaks. And the words he speaks to you and I are words of an invitation. An invitation to enter into his life, to enter into the very heart and family of God himself. By the Spirit, God offers you the resurrected life of the Son. And in receiving it, you were wed to Jesus himself. You were made to be a bride of the Son of the Father. And by being wed to the Father's Son, you become sons and daughters of the Father himself and heirs of his eternal kingdom. And it's true. There are rules and commandments in this family. For those who bear the name of Christ in this world, there are expectations of obedience and right conduct. But your obedience to God is not what makes him love you. No. Your obedience to God is what God wants to form in those who love him. Praise God that the Father's invitation to us is an invitation of adoption, an invitation of marriage. That the Father wishes to know you and to be known by you. That the Father wishes to be as close to you as he is to his own Son. Praise God that through the Spirit you and I are made to be the bride of Jesus. And as the bride of Christ, we can enter into God's kingdom not as servants, but as friends. Not as enemies, but as sons and daughters of the Father himself. Praise the goodness of the Father shown to us in Christ. Praise Christ that he came to us by the Spirit, that he stooped down into our little world and imaged the Father to us. Praise God that he offers to image in you and I his life as well. Praise Christ that he came for us, that he did not abandon us, that he will return for us. Praise God for his coming and for his coming again. Amen. Amen.